0: Welcome back to GI Pearls, the Gastroenterology and Hepatology literature review podcast where I read the journals so you don't have to. This is episode 55 for the month of June 2022. If you like what you hear and would like to help, please leave a review on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. It really helps others discover the podcast. Again, if you have articles you want me to read, send me the PDFs to info at gipearls.com. I do not have a subscription to every GI journal in the world. All right, let's crack open those journals, shall we? We'll start off with a quick one. When you're doing endoscopy, it's good to keep numbers in the back of your mind, such as adenoma detection rate, telling you that you should find adenomas in at least a third of your patients, and also keeping things like how often you should find cancers or flat lesions such as serrated adenomas. So you should know that a recommended ADR for fit-positive patients should be at 45% for men and 35% for women. I hope your numbers are well above that. Anyway, this next paper is a meta-analysis of all the big studies of FIT-positive patients who had a colonoscopy to find out the yield of FIT. In this study over the past few years, the pooled FIT ADR has been rising from 35% up to 45%, and about a quarter of the time you should find advanced adenomas, and about 5% of the time you should find colon cancer. So keep these numbers in mind and also make sure that your ADR for fit positive patient is at least 15 to 20% higher than your general ADR. Unless you're a rock star and your ADR is above 50%. I'm not sure if you need any help there. Staying on the topic of endoscopy, truth is we don't have great evidence that colonoscopies reduce colon cancer mortality. We have some good data for FLEXIGs, but we do not have them for colonoscopies we kind of assume that colonoscopies work as an extension of a FLEXIG. And there have been several FLEXIG studies in the past. Here is the follow-up to one of them, what happened to all those patients who had a FLEXIG back in the 90s. In this next paper, titled Long-Term Follow-Up of Italian Flexible Cognoscopy Screening Trial, published in the Annals of Internal Medicine. Here they report colon cancer incidence after 15 years follow-up and mortality for 19 years of follow-up. In this study, incidence of CRC was reduced by 19%. So that's a relative risk of 0.81. This is in the intention to treat group and 33% in the per protocol group. Colon cancer mortality was reduced by 22% in the ITT group and 39% in the per protocol group. And this data is from Italy and there were similar studies out of Norway and the UK in the past. If you look over time, the curves of mortality and incidence of colon cancer don't really separate up until about five years, which makes the data seem very good, meaning that there's less likely to be confounders there. What should you take away from this study? Well, ballpark reduction in colon cancer risk after a flexig is about 30%, which is not bad. Hopefully, colonoscopy has a greater reduction. I'd say it definitely becomes worth it if the reduction is north of 50%. That would be amazing. This next paper is titled Recurrence of Colorectal Neoplastic Polyps After Incomplete Resection. It was published back in October 2021, but I had to talk about it because I saw it in the Twitter news again, mainly due to the efforts of the fine folks of the ACG Digital Communication Committee. The idea of the paper was to look at the recurrence of polyps after you remove them. How do you do this? They looked at the prevalence of neoplasia after removal of polyps in a given segment of the colon meaning that if you find a polyp in the same segment where you removed the polyp before, it is possible that this polyp is there because of an incomplete resection. It was a chart review of the observational cohort of the polyp resection study from the late 2000s. Looking at the resection of polyps, after a 5 to 20 millimeter polyp was removed, biopsies were taken from the edges to see if the polyp was completely removed, a very standard technique for looking for residual polyp tissue. Then if it was incompletely removed, you bring the patient back in a year, and see if you get the residual polyp or any other metachronous lesions. So the difference was surprising and quite dramatic. Imagine you leave a bit of adenoma behind, even though you removed the vast majority of the polyp. One would think, who cares? It's just a little bit left behind. But here's the kicker: incomplete polyp resection group had a higher risk of metachronous lesions, 52% versus 23% for complete resection, including advanced lesions. versus just 3% for polyps in colons with completely resected polyps. That's quite a dramatic difference. In the end, this study probably raises more questions than it answers, since it is so small, but still makes it very interesting. Did the biopsies taken to ensure complete resection of the polyp somehow acted as a surrogate for additional neoplasia? Though it is probably clear that since the polyps were in the same segment and the same histology... It's probably residual polyp that was left behind. I wonder if the timing of endoscopy, what made the difference too, meaning follow up in a year versus later. Also, does leaving a polyp partially resected make it somehow more aggressive, faster growing? It's unclear from this study, since it was just a retrospective chart review. So take that with a grain of salt. Still pretty impressive data. Okay, microbiome maximalists, I'll throw you a bone here. Next paper is out of Nature Scientific Reports, and it's titled Randomized Controlled Study Shows Supplementation of Overweight and Obese Adults with Lactobacilli and Bifidobacteria Reduces Body Weight and Improves Well Being. So, what they did here is took a probiotic from a company that paid for the trial, by the way, randomized about 220 Bulgarians to take this probiotic for six months or a placebo, and then weighed them. And the probiotic group lost about two pounds. kilograms. Okay, maybe that's about three pounds. And the researchers also measured all sorts of stuff, quality of life questionnaires, lipid levels, triglycerides, fecal microbiome, you name it. And the weight loss, of course, was statistically significant. That's great. It is a bit strange that there were no adverse events reported in either group. Also, a little strange that zero, exactly zero patients in either arm dropped out. I mean, you run studies with over 200 patients, you expect to lose at least one. Come on. Not a single patient left the study, but I'll remain less skeptical. Another interesting fact was that the people on the probiotic were 40% less likely to suffer an upper respiratory tract infection. Another strange thing, the weight was measured only twice. Once in three months, then again in six months. And at three months, there was exactly zero difference in weight. And the only statistically significant difference was at the six months measurement, not at three months. Anyway, I'm not suggesting this thing doesn't work. It just seems a bit strange. But then again, maybe they did hit on the right probiotic this time. Who knows? Microbiome maximalists keep on trucking. Another quick one. Pernicious anemia is a risk factor for gastric cancer, and I found one or two gastric cancers in patients like that. One of them was referred to me by an oncologist who knew of the association after diagnosing a patient with pernicious anemia. But are there other autoimmune conditions that may be associated with gastric cancer as well? This is a case control study looking at over 47 autoimmune conditions and associations with gastric cancer. Thankfully, in this case control study, pernicious anemia did pop up on top with the strongest signal. So that's reassuring. But several other autoimmune conditions were notable. And I just wanted to list those for you here, just so you're aware of the association. So here they are membranous nephropathy, Primary biliary cirrhosis, immune thrombocytopenic purpura, ITP, and pure red cell aplasia were all notable with the odds ratios not too far from pernicious anemia, actually. So I guess this is something to keep in mind when deciding how badly your patient needs an upper endoscopy. Maybe an additional risk factor to push you over one way or the other. A big debate in GI is what's best for patients, awake colonoscopy, conscious sedation, or propofol. There are various opinions on the subject, and we all do things differently. I personally prefer propofol for three reasons. I do believe the patients are more comfortable. I like having a nurse anesthetist in the room, not only as an extra person to detain you, but also someone who keeps a careful eye on the vitals and, most importantly, the airway. Especially in patients with extra weight or history of sleep apnea, which is common in my patient population, at least. And the third reason is that I get to focus on what I hopefully do best. Look for polyps without being distracted by drugs, vitals, or other aspects of patient care. There were studies in the past showing that the patient satisfactions were equivalent for moderate sedation or deep sedation or propofol. I actually never believed those studies after doing colonoscopies with both methods and talking to patients afterwards. So what better population to ask about colonoscopy comfort than patients with IBD, who have many colonoscopies? This next study out of Denmark published in CGH compared moderate sedation, fentanyl midase, versus NAPS, propofol administered by nursing staff. This was a randomized trial of 63 patients, primary endpoint being patient satisfaction at discharge. Keep in mind that most of these patients had colonoscopies before, before they were randomized to this trial. And lo and behold, patients with Propofol were happier. Sedation was more to their liking. And didn't mind amnesia part and better experience with current than previous sedation. And what were the authors were mostly after? What sedation did the patients want in the future? And would they be willing to undergo more colonoscopies? The answer is yes with Propofol much more often. Meaning in this high-risk population that requires more colonoscopies than an average person, but often skips them these patients are more likely to come back. When I get my colonoscopy, I'll probably be awake or have propofol. Forget about that fentanyl mid stuff. And now for something different. Every practicing GI doc has a cohort of folks in their 60s and 70s, uh, maybe even 80s, that you see once a year or twice a year just to order an imaging studies to look at some low-risk pancreatic cyst somewhere. Well, maybe there is a good reason for you to see them at some point to decide to stop imaging them altogether. This next study looked at over 400 patients with low-risk suspected or presumed mucinous cysts for about five years of follow-up time to see what happens to these patients. Now, obviously, if a patient is too sick to ever undergo any kind of surgeries, let alone pancreatic surgery, you should probably stop surveying them, unless there's a very special reason to continue. This study basically shows that if you have a lot of comorbidities, you are many times more likely to die of something else and not your pancreatic cysts becoming cancer. So the role of surveillance in individuals with poor overall survival is probably worthless and you're wasting everybody's time and very likely worrying patients for no good reason. The biggest takeaway from this study is a recommendation in the discussion. If you're unsure of what exactly meets the criteria for a lot of comorbidities, use the Charleston Comorbidity Index. It's even available on mdcalc.com website. If you get a number above seven, probably think about stopping surveillance in your patients with pancreatic cysts. All right, one more paper about ADR, adenoma detection rate, the very metric by which all endoscopies are judged. In general, it is very resource intensive to calculate. You either have to physically look at hundreds of reports, figure out which ones are screening, which ones are diagnostic, find out how many of the colons had adenomas, crunch the numbers. And if you're doing a multiplex analysis, including Other things such as advanced adenomas, fit positive patients, serrated polyps, detection rate, etc. It gets very tricky. Boy, do I love good questions that are easy to answer. Here's one. If you're measuring your ADR and it seems stable, do you need to keep measuring it? A very provocative question. This is the very question that the folks from Indiana asked. They looked at adenoma detection rate of 11 endoscopists in their unit over 10 years. What did they find? Well, while there was a slight variation... Over the study period, 5 out of the 11 endoscopists had an increase in the ADR, and the other 6 had a stable ADR. All but one never dropped below a 25% threshold, and even that one did only for a little while. Most had ADR in their 30s or 40s range, but the kicker here is that most endoscopists in the study were never told about their ADR during the study period unless they fell below the pre-specified threshold of 25%. So basically, none of them really knew what their ADR was. They just knew that it was good enough. question remains, once we establish a set adenoma detection rate, does it make sense to check it constantly and waste resources? Hopefully, advances in EMR and artificial intelligence will make this point moot. But for the next few years, the answer may be that, no, we don't need a constant reminder of our ADR once we get good enough. Also, keep in mind, you need to know if you are not doing well, So spot checks are probably okay and wise, even though there may be a limited benefit once you are above the threshold. Working in a unit where Doug Rex works probably helps too, because this is where the paper's coming from. For myself, I do spot checks every few months by looking at the next 100 screenings to see where I am. Since I still have to look at pathology every time I send result letters anyway, it is annoying, but doesn't take too much time. And sometimes I measure other things, such as serrated pile detection rate or fit test ADR. And if you don't know your ballpark ADR, you are in trouble. So one more paper I wanted to talk about regarding incomplete polyp resection rate. Removing large polyp by endoscopic mucosal resection is a good pursuit overall. When it comes to polyps over 20 millimeters, it would be good not to leave any pieces behind, obviously. When removing these techniques matters a great deal, and we should probably use every tool we can and learn every technique to achieve lower recurrence rates and incomplete resection rates. This next paper out of GIE shows a good method. There's even a video if you want to see how this works. The title is Margin Marking Before Colorectal Endoscopic Mucosal Resection and Its Impact on Neoplasia Recurrence. In this paper, they looked over 200 polyps, quite large, about 3 centimeters on average. With about 70 of these 200, they tattooed the margins prior to resection, and the rest were standard EMR technique removed. Their occurrence rate here dropped from a staggering 28.7% down to 8%. Remember, these are large polyps, three centimeters. They were still allowed to burn the edges and use a hot snare or even APC as needed. By the way, in this paper, the new method was compared to historical controls, so that's a bit of a small issue. But overall, I think marking the edge helps you have a systematic way of deciding what the margin is and more or less forces you to commit to looking at the margin before you resect anything and make a mess. And also. If you can't see the margin, maybe you shouldn't be able to resect it. And it gives you an idea of what approach you should take. So do you really need another device to mark the edges? No, just use a tip of the snare, the very same snare you may use to remove it. Although the hot snares typically are a little bit less stiff than the dedicated cold snares. So you may end up using two snares, the cold snare and hot snare. So what you do is basically make tiny little dots on the edges of where you think the polyp margin is. And maybe a little bit away from the polyp and then remove the entire tissue up to this margin that you made. It's certainly much simpler than marking the entire edge or burning the entire edge after with soft coagulation. And according to this trial, burning the edge after is associated with a higher recurrence rate anyway. So maybe that's not the way to go. Next step is probably a randomized clinical trial. But for now, please consider doing this if you have large polyps. Some papers are good examples of why we need good clinical trials. This next randomized clinical trial of percutaneous tibial nerve stimulation for fecal incontinence in women. A couple years ago, I saw a trial of this device, which was very promising, with a response rate of something like 80%. It was not randomized. It was an observational study. And since it is such a big problem and not much can be done for some patients with moderate to severe accidental bowel leakage, despite going through pelvic floor physical therapy, you'd figure why not do this non-invasive, easy-to-train device. This clinical trial randomized about 100 women to the use of this percutaneous tibial nerve stimulator versus sham. Now, these women had an average about 6 episodes of incontinence a week, and it looked like it worked, with the nerve stimulator reducing the number of events and patients reporting a good response. Except the sham group had a similar response. Conclusion is as follows. Although symptom reduction after 12 weeks of nerve stimulator met a threshold of clinical importance, it did not differ from sham stimulation. These data do not support the use of percutaneous tibial nerve stimulator as conducted for the treatment of fecal incontinence in women. This is too bad. I was really hoping this was gonna work. All right, guidelines, guidelines, guidelines. You come here for guidelines. Here's a good one, but a bit long. Americans and Canadians got together to release this ACG-CAG clinical practice guideline, Management of Anticoagulants and antiplatelets During Acute GI Bleed. How do I summarize this the shortest way possible? I'll give it a try. One, for patients on warfarin, don't use FFP. You can consider it if INR is sky-high and bleed is life-threatening, and you've got nothing else to offer. 2. Guideline writers could not reach a conclusion regarding the use of prothrombin complex concentrate PCC. But if you had to pick one, FFP versus PCC, go with PCC. 4. If a patient is admitted under observation with a GI bleed, don't give them vitamin K. Seems strange, but basically, if a patient is not having a life threatening bleed, adding vitamin K probably doesn't change bleeding risk or mortality. 5. Dabigatran, trend. If patients are admitted under observation, you don't need to give them idracizumab, the reversing antibody. 6. Rivaroxaban and apixaban. Don't give them Adexinant alpha, another reversal agent. 7. Direct oral anticoagulants. Don't give them the prothrombin complex concentrate. 8. Antiplatelet agents. Do not infuse fresh platelets to try to reverse. 9. If the patient is on aspirin, and for good reason, don't hold aspirin in acute GI bleed. And if you stop it, resume it as soon as hemostasis is achieved. Also remember that the recent recommendations for primary prevention on aspirin have been reversed. Maybe a good opportunity to stop aspirin for those who don't really need it. So basically, let's summarize the first 10 recommendations. They told us do as little as possible while trying to reverse anticoagulation, as long as the patient is stable, when possible, if not impossible. Now, the next one is a bit controversial, and I bet will lead to a lot of changes. 11. For patients on warfarin undergoing elective planned endoscopic low-risk procedure, don't stop warfarin. Yes, do not stop it. For elective outpatient screening endoscopies or colonoscopies, your Barrett surveillance, etc. If you have to hold warfarin, don't bridge it. Basically, what this statement summarizes is the data that not stopping warfarin is less dangerous than stopping it and bridging it and then doing the procedure where bleeding risk is higher. Thirteen, direct oral anticoagulants. These you should stop before elective procedures. Hold these for a day or two. Fourteen, patients on dual antiplatelet therapy for secondary cardiovascular prevention. Stop clopidogrel and ticagrelor, but continue aspirin. I think this is what most folks are doing already, which is good. 15, for patients on aspirin alone for secondary cardiovascular prevention. Keep going with aspirin and don't stop it. 16, when do you resume warfarin after you stop it? Is it the next day or a week after the procedure? Well, there's no recommendation here since they could not reach a conclusion or consensus. And I guess that all depends. I say that if you feel things went okay and there's no overt risk of bleeding, resume the same day or the next day. And obviously, if you didn't do much, obviously resume it right away. 17. Same thing for Doax. They could not reach a conclusion when to resume them. 18. And the same thing for clopidogrel and tacaagrelor. No recommendation on when to restart it. Biggest takeaway from this guideline is this. Don't stop drugs you don't need to stop, such as aspirin. If you're going to stop warfarin, don't bridge unless a cardiologist or someone else tells you it's a good idea. And regarding warfarin, don't stop it for routine things. I feel this is where a lot of people will have a problem. Also, hard not to stop warfarin if you've never been in the colon, because if you find a large polyp and you think the risk of bleeding is high, you're going to have to bring the patient back, reprep them again, and then you have to tell them to stop warfarin anyway to minimize bleeding risk. But this will be a very unique situation where you would not stop warfarin. At least that's how I feel. The end. And that's all I have for you today for GI Pearls, the Gastroenterology and Hepatology Literature Review Podcast. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to leave a review on iTunes. It really helps. Send me articles to info at gipros.com. Special thanks today to username HikingDog for leaving a review of five stars on iTunes. Truly appreciate your help. Thanks again. Bye-bye.